Hi, and welcome to Off Grid with me, Void. And me, Dave. Yes, it's the Not Really About Crosswords podcast, although we have solved a crossword, and we're going to tell you our three favourite clues, but it's not really about that. We're also going to tell you three words we found in the grid and things we think are interesting about them, and hopefully you'll agree. And you don't have to have solved the puzzle in order to follow our chat. But if you do want to, this episode we've solved puzzle 16990 from the Financial Times, which was on Wednesday the 12th of January 2022 and set by Moo. So if you don't want spoilers, hit pause now and go solve it before you come back and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. We are also going to have a short quiz inspired by some words in the puzzle, courtesy of general knowledge general welcome back to the podcast thank you very much for having me back it's always a pleasure so let's have those clues then uh don't worry if you're not into cryptic crosswords it's fine don't panic we'll explain how they work a little bit later so general what was your favorite clue please my favorite clue was 20 down which is sailor runs up to welcome bill and the enumeration for that is three three and Dave? And my choice was 15 down, which said, Starry-eyed Romeo leaving Tipsily not long ago. Nine letters. What about yours? And I went for one down. American right-wingers do without alcohol. Three, five. Okay, have a ponder over those or ignore them as you like. We'll come back to them in a bit. But first of all, General, what word leapt out at you from the puzzle? Uh, my word was three down snails, which for me in a way is an odd choice because I'm not a huge fan of the invertebrates, particularly those without legs. <laughs> they creep me out of it. Uh, I originally chose this because I thought I had a really interesting experiment that had been done about snail racing, and it turned out to be actually about cockroaches. But then I thought, what do I know about snails? And Snails are actually quite interesting. For instance, can you think of a Roman or Greek deity that you would associate with snails? What could have been inspired by snails? Oh, now that's interesting because I was thinking of picking snails for my word and I would have gone down a sort of ancient route, but not to a deity, so which... Might be a demigod. Not sure. I'm not good on my deities. I think he might be a demigod. Oh, okay. Oh well, when you reveal it, Void will probably know because that is his, uh, his area of interest. <laughs> I'm very much a dilettante. I find it interesting, but don't go pegging me for an expert at all. Um, uh, no, I don't know. Is it Cupid or Eros? Oh yes. Because oh. of the love dart. Right. No? How okay. so? Well. Snails, during their mating ritual, it's actually quite an intricate mating ritual. It's it's a whole six hours they spend circling each other, touching various bits of their anatomy. But at some point, not every snail, I think, I think there are some snails which don't do this, but a lot of them have a love dart, which they fire into the other's body during the mating ritual. They're actually quite significantly sized compared to the size of the body of the snail. So for <laughs> right. the equivalent of a, of a human thing is if sometime during your courtship you suddenly stab someone with a 15-inch knife is what the snails do. Please. Don't um, try this at home. 
please. <laughs> well, I, I'm sure the snails enjoy it. For a long time, people didn't really know what this was all about, but it's definitely it's not a like a penis going in, putting in any genetic material. This is actually part of the courtship ritual. And it's thought now, they're pretty certain it's to do with, I'm assuming you both know that snails are hermaphrodite. Mm-hmm. And it's a way of determining which of the snails is going to be the one who carries the fertilized eggs. So which one does the fertilizing and which one doesn't. So it's there's some sort of mucus on the love dart, which makes this happen. But it actually comes out of the cell with quite a force to the point it can get lodged in the internal organs and has been known to actually pierce the snail from one Crikey. side of the body to the other. Ooh. It's quite oh, right. Careful what you're doing with that thing. And I just thought, I mean, what a fascinating thing to have evolved. It just, there must be easier ways to do this. Yeah, you'd have thought. I've certainly seen TV footage of like a couple of them hanging off of leaves or something entwined with each other, don't they? They really kind of coil around each other a lot. Apparently you can find these darts sometimes sort of in snail mucus and things. But you can also find snails crawling around with these still lodged in them. Stuck in them. You know what to look for, I suppose. This is part of the decision-making process rather than the act of sex itself, is it? Yes. So they do, right. This is completely separate to the actual interchange of genetic material. But it does, they think, determine whose genetic material is the one which goes to the other one Mm. who then carries the eggs. And it's, the whole courtship thing is quite big. And the reason I remembered this is, um, do you know the author Patricia Highsmith? She wrote the t- uh, yeah. Talented Mr. Ripley. Yes. Yeah. She's also written some shorts, many short stories, but at least two of them I know are quite snail-orientated. <laughs> and one of them has quite a detailed sort of description of the snail mating ritual. And she was actually a huge fan of snails herself. She kept hundreds as pets. And she was known to go to parties with a bag with lettuce in and snails, which right. she take with her. Just and, to freak out the other guests. Yeah. And one of her friends claims that she actually smuggled snails. She once smuggled her cherished pet snails through French customs by hiding six or eight of them under each bosom. I mean, I, I love my cat, but <laughs> there are limits. Yeah, yeah. Sort of ties in with the sort of stuff that I keep talking about with all medieval manuscripts and things, because in a lot of those there are marginalia drawings of knights fighting giant snails, and there's sort of decades and decades of speculation as to why, what this means, why there are pictures of of sword fights between knights and giant snails it's all very old that would make sense because i mean this sort of speculation why the cupid thing because obviously the greeks were known to be quite interested in natural the natural words and observing different animals and that's why they thought that maybe the whole love love dart thing and the snail they might have seen the snails doing this and extrapolated it and given it seen it with a deity as well so next time you we see a picture of Cupid or Eros. Imagine something a lot slimier. Lovely. But yes, my original idea was I had thought it was going to relate to snail racing. 
because um, I've got this great book called um, Elephants on Acid. And what is that? Alex it... Bose, is it? Is yes. Alex Bose? Yes, I've got that somewhere, yeah. And um, I thought it was a snail racing thing, but there's a cockroach racing thing where I think I've remembered it because in my mind they've set up this arena where there's a tube for the, I thought snails, but no, cockroaches to race through. And I just imagine either side, like terraces, <laughs> match with all the cockroaches <laughs> or snails standing up and watching. But the interesting thing about come it is... Come on, so, Derek, come on, Derek. <laughs> yes, it was like that because it's a psychological experiment and they timed how fast the cockroaches ran when they were being watched by other cockroaches oh. as opposed if they were by themselves. Right. And they found they actually ran faster when they had an audience of their peers. <laughs> but then they made it more complicated. They made a very simple maze, did the same thing. Mm. And they found that when they were watched by an audience of their peers, they actually were slower through the maze than if they were by themselves. So performance anxiety in cockroaches. Distracted, they, yeah. Yeah, and, they but they repeated this Didn't want this to be for, seen to make a mistake, perhaps. I think they repeated this for, like, cats, I believe goldfish randomly, hamsters, <laughs> gerbils, all sorts of things. And they found exactly the same effect. When they were watched in a straight line, they went faster. So simple tasks were achieved faster with an audience. More complex tasks were slowed down with the whole, well, we think performance anxiety. I'm obviously anthropomorphizing this a little bit. Uh, but I can sadly find no examples of this ever being done with snails. So that's oh, all that Never mind. Anyway, um, so that's my snails for you. That's cool. Shall we move away from some invertebrates then? <laughs> Absolutely. Dave, yes. Do you want to tell us about your favourite clue, how it works? Yeah, we'll refer, re, um, return briefly to the first of those. If you remember, it was Starry-Eyed Romeo leaving Tipsily not long ago. And this was an anagram with a deletion. So if you start with Starry-Eyed... And then Romeo leaving means to delete one of the R's because Romeo is the NATO phonetic alphabet name for the letter R. And that leaves you with starry-eyed, I suppose. Tipsily is the anagram indicator. And not long ago is the definition. So you shuffle starry-eyed around until you get yesterday. I just thought it was a nice little narrative in the surface of that. Freud, what did yeah. you find to talk about? I picked out the word Asia because it made me think, why is it called that? Mm. So I thought, let's go on a little tour of the continents and their names. So let's start at the top, In even though it's not actually a continent, the Arctic. Do you know why the Arctic is so called? Is it not Arctos is Greek for north or something like that? Is that... Uh, you are right that Arctos is the Greek for something, but it's the Greek for bear. It's the bear. Oh, because Ursus Arctos is the... Is the yeah, because yeah, we have the, the great bear, bear and the little bear in yeah. as constellations in the northern sky, the pole star being in the little bear. Okay. Which made me think, hang on a second, we call those constellations Ursa Major and Ursa Minor, and that's Latin, not Greek. What's going on there? But it's just a translation. Um, apparently the Greeks called them Arctumicras and Arctumegales. So, yeah, same thing. So does the star Arcturus get its name from the same thing? Ooh, it's not in either of those constellations, although it is near 
the great bear. Hang on, Arcturus is oh, it's in yes. Boetes, but I'm just wondering about whether it got its name as sort of bear relatedly. Possibly because Boetes is the bear driver or the bear herder. Okay, yeah. well there we are. Mm. And if you want to know <laughs> where the star Arcturus is in the sky, if you want to know how to find it, picture the plow. Everyone knows the plow or the Big Dipper if you're American. And the plow has a curved handle, right? Mm-hmm. Can you say or, so? Yeah, let's instead of saying it's curved, let's call it arced. Mm-hmm. So if you follow the arc of the handle of the plow and keep going in the same arc away from the plow, you'll get to another bright star. And that arc takes you to Arcturus. So now you know how to find Arcturus. Very good. Excellent, thank you. I I did wonder why those constellations were called the Great Bear and the Little Bear, and I wondered if it might be because the Greeks knew that there were polar bears way up north, but I didn't go into that, so well, pass. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, You're going to so go around so, the other continents now. Yes, so yes. swapping poles, Antarctica, well, that's simply fairly a, obvious. Yeah. Anti-Arctic or no bears, <laughs> so, which made me think it should be called Penguinica. <laughs> well, there is that old thing about why don't polar bears eat penguins because they can't yeah. get the wrappers off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's hop up to Australia or Australasia, and that is it's just simply Southern Land in Latin. Yeah, yeah. The, Terra the, Australis. Yeah. Terra Australis Incognita, the unknown southern mm. land, was what the uh, early explorers went in search of. And it was Matthew Flinders who suggested the name Australia, and that stuck. Now, if we hop across the Pacific, we'll get to a little place, I don't know if you've heard of it, called uh, America. You ring a bell? <laughs> yeah. Mm. Apparently, that is named after. Well, there are, was... there are two or three competing yes. theories, aren't there? Um, I mean, I know what... one. I know one of them yeah, is Amerigo that, Vespucci. Yeah, that's the one that has the the weight of um, history and evidence mostly behind it. It's named after the ex- Italian explorer Amerigo Vespucci with a slightly feminized and Latinized form of his first name, which is related to the German name Emmerich, I read. Mm. Other theories have suggested that it was named after the Amerisque Mountains in Nicaragua. Or after the why? Well, uh, well, <laughs> why did you name it after some mountains in Nicaragua? Yeah, I wasn't sure. I, yeah, got, I got confused there as to whether those mountains had been named after Vespucci. So it was a sort of circular naming okay. argument. Mm. Another one was that it could have been named after Richard Americk, who was a Welsh merchant who funded, funded, and funded John Cabot's expedition of fourteen ninety seven. Okay. Uh, and another theory is that it was named after the band who had a hit with a horse with no name <laughs> in 1972. But I, I couldn't find any hard supporting evidence for any of those three. Right. So it's probably Vespucci. <laughs> and so we get to the big three, the big ancient three of Europe, Africa and Asia. Mm. And if you want more detail than I'm going to give here, then I'm going to link to an article by Peter Gainsford, who who gives loads of stuff about it in his Kiwi Hellenist blog. The Greeks, Herodotus especially, referred to Libya as all the land west of Egypt. So all of North Africa, they called Libya. 
and by extension, all of Africa. And Libya comes from an ancient Egyptian word, which is transliterated as RBW. Mm. So <laughs> I, I guess R's and L's interchange a bit in some languages. So you can just about get there. Mm. But of course, Libya isn't Africa. And somewhat surprisingly, that actually comes from a very old song, which was a hit for Toto in 1982. <laughs> no, 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 sorry. Um, <laughs> it comes from the name of a tribe who lived west of Carthage. They were called the Afer, and Livy calls them the Afri. And again, this eventually got expanded to refer to the whole continent. So blame the Romans. Why not? Europe. Have you got any ideas what Europe's named after? Uh, it's, no. Well, Europa, obviously, to start with. Is it uh, F- Phoenician? Somebody uh, yes. or other? It was, it was a, yes. a person. I can't remember what she, what she was. but uh... Yeah, well, that is a common best bet for what most people would say. And indeed, if you look at Euro banknotes, they've got a, an image of Europa on them. And she was a Phoenician princess who was, uh, right. quote, kidnapped by Zeus or what have you. But the thing <laughs> is, Phoenicia is not in what the Greeks would have called Europe or what the Greeks would have thought of as what we call Europe. So yeah. it would be a bit weird for them to have named the, the continent after her. And that's not what it's named after. It's oh. actually uh, derived from the name of a group of very old musicians Sorry, no, nonsense. Um, it, the linguist, linguistic origin isn't known for sure, but there was a region in northern Greece in ancient times that was referred to as Europe, and there were towns called Europos in Macedonia and Thessaly. And again, Herodotus talks about Xerxes intending to march, quote, through Europe against Hellas in his invasion of the 5th century BCE. And again, it expanded its scope and came to be thought of as just sort of all of the the Greek lands or the Greek civilised, quote-unquote, lands, as opposed to the African or or Asian ones. And so finally we get to Asia. I I do get to my point eventually. (laughs) And of course, only an idiot would think that Asia would named after the band who had a US hit with Heat of the Moment in 1982. So we won't go there. I'm just making a note that if I ever form a band, I've got to call it Antarctica. Yes. (laughs) Well, maybe there is one already. Oh, there's bound to be somewhere, isn't there? (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, yes, so Asia. Yeah. Asia was not named after an obscure sea nymph who was either the wife or mother of Prometheus. But it comes from the Hittite region of Asua, in which is in what we'd now call Turkey. Mm. And that means roughly good land in Hittite. Uh, and again, the use of it expanded to mean anywhere east of there as well, as far as the, the Greeks were concerned. So there you go. That's my uh, musically distracted the story of the continent names. Goodness. Very uh, impressed. Now, how about your choice of clue? Give us an uh, explanation for that one, I think. I think it was Sailor Runs Up to Welcome Bill, 3-3. Three, three. Now, the reason I really liked this was because the sailor was actually a sailor. It wasn't Ab or Tar or 
Jack or, <laughs> or RM or Jolly or any of the other sort of... When you see Sailor in a crossword glue, you often think AB, don't you? So it was yeah. very nice to see the answer was Sea Dog. Oh, yes, runs up. So that's goes, runs, goes, as in programme runs, the programme goes. Reversed, up because it's a down clue, and to welcome Bill, which is add, which in crossword land is bill or a notice or advertisement set ad. Excellent. Right, Dave, which word did you pick? Well, at five down, we've got the word lexicographer. I think when we see uh, lexicographer, we think of possibly Samuel Johnson as the father of the uh, English dictionary at any rate, but he certainly wasn't the first. He was perhaps the first to make a serious and comprehensive job of it. Probably the first... English dictionary was uh, in 1617 by a chap called Robert Cordry, and his was called A Table Alphabetical Containing and Teaching the True Writing and Understanding of Hard Usual English Words Borrowed from the Hebrew, Greek, Latin, or French, etc. They did love a good long title in those days. Well, yeah, you wait, you wait, mate. Um, (laughs) The lovely subtitle to this went on. With the interpretation thereof by plain English words, gathered for the benefit and help of ladies, gentlewomen, or any other unskillful persons, whereby they may the more easily and better understand many hard English words which they shall hear or read in (laughs) scriptures, sermons, or elsewhere, and also be made able to use the same aptly themselves. So there's a nice bit of 17th century casual sexism there. Yeah, it, it does sound like casual sexism, but also... Is it like, yay, education for women? Expressed how, badly. Depends how you want to interpret it, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, I, let's take it that way. Yeah. But after Cordry and one of the immediate precursors to Johnson, which was 1755 or thereabouts, hmm. um, was an universal etymological English dictionary of 1721 by Nathan or Nathaniel Bailey. And long titles, right? Deep breaths, folks. <laughs> the The full title for this one was An Universal Etymological English Dictionary Comprehending the Derivations of the Generality of Words in the English Tongue, Either Ancient or Modern, from the Ancient British, Saxon, Danish, Norman, Modern French, Teutonic, Dutch, Spanish, Italian, and also from the Latin, Greek, and Hebrew languages, each in their proper characters. And also a brief and clear explication of all difficult words derived from any of the aforesaid languages in terms of art relating to anatomy, botany, physic, pharmacy, surgery, chemistry, philosophy, divinity, mathematics, grammar, logic, rhetoric, music, heraldry, maritime affairs, military discipline, horsemanship, hunting, hawking, fowling, fishing, gardening, husbandry, handicrafts, confectionery, carving, cookery, etc. Deep breath. Together with... A large collection and explication of words and phrases used in our ancient statutes, charters, writs, old records and processes in law, and the etymology and interpretation of the proper names of men and women and remarkable places in Great Britain, also the dialects of our different countries, containing many thousand words more than either Harris, Phillips, Kersey or any extant English dictionary, to which is added a collection of our most common proverbs with their explication and illustration, the whole work compiled and methodically digested as well for the entertainment of the curious as the information of the ignorant and for the benefit of young students, artificers, tradesmen and foreigners who are desirous thoroughly to understand what they speak, read or write. Um. I, I think he wants to get his money's worth out of his... Sorry, I didn't catch that. Could you say it again? 
One question is, did the Guinness Book of Records exist at this point? <laughs> and was someone just going for the longest title of a book ever? Well, think he either wanted to get his money's worth out of his typesetters, <laughs> or he was unsure of the difference between a title... And a full page advertisement. Yeah. Um, so, so, would this have been in like a hardbacks book with a cover? Because I'm just trying to picture the typesetting oh, yeah. yeah. of the title, and it's, it's yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, it's not going to fly days, off they the shelves. Wouldn't, they wouldn't have had the cover of the title on the outside, but on the on the first printed internal page. Yeah, yeah. I've seen pictures of it with kind of. Nice so, what would they even have on the around. spine? Dictionary. <laughs> well, you would hope so, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's interesting, isn't it? So I suppose if it this is, just says dictionary on the spine, as long as you yeah. can actually just look at the outside and know what you're getting, because otherwise, I mean, you just get not that far in and go, next. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a few fun words from Johnson's Dictionary. Right. I think the, f- the first one is going to be guessable in terms of meaning possibly, but the others others won't be. Uh, we've got brontology. Study of the brontis? No, that wouldn't be the right oh. time period, would it? Uh. Study <laughs> of thunder? Yeah, it, he's, he defines it as a dissertation upon thunder. Quite how many of those were written, I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, that, that, that was at least um, kind of Could workoutable from the etymology. Uh, the brontosaurus means thunder lizard, doesn't it? It does indeed. Mm. There's Lutarius, L-U-T-A-R-I-O-U-S. It's clearly an adjective. So the Roman name for Paris was Lutetium, and they call it the City of Light. Has it got something to do with light? Quite the opposite. It's oh. uh, it's living in mud, or the colour of mud. <laughs> so I think that's quite good. Ossitancy, which is O-S-C-I... Oh, sorry. sorry. Is that kissing? It's close because you think, yeah, it's os- osculation, isn't it? Uh, yeah. It's actually the act of yawning or drowsiness caused by yawning. Ah. Uh, I've only got a couple more. Um, there's yeah. Pilser, P-I-L-S-E-R, not Pilsner. Hmm. You're not going to guess this one. No. This is a moth or fly that runs into a candle flame. That's a strangely specific Word. It's a, I mean, it's sort of, it, you feel it like it should be one of those German words which you put things together and make yeah, really yeah, long words. Compound. But it's one that you think it should still be useful because we, okay, maybe not candle flames, but we still get flies that buzz around the lights, don't we? Uh, he seemed to also uh, have a bit of a thing for words for short, fat women. He's got pundle and trub tail, which both mean a short, fat, squat woman. Charming. Charming, <laughs> indeed. However, Moving just for last last point, uh, moving into a bit more modern times, I've got five uh, sort of humorous definitions, and I'll have a quick question after them. Okay. Uh, we've got éclair, a cake, long in shape, but short in duration. Void's nodding, he knows where I'm going with this. Mullet, a hairstyle that is short at the front, long at the back, and ridiculous all round. Regift. To give an unwanted present as a gift to another person in a process which is likely to continue indefinitely. Right. And tweenager, a child who, although not yet a teenager, 
has already developed an interest in fashion, pop music, and exasperating his or her parents. <laughs> now my question is, do you know where those are from? Well, when you said the Eclair one, I thought, oh, I know where this is from. It's from Ambrose Bierce's Devil's Dictionary. But the other ones are, would post-date him. Yeah, so, I've got here a copy of Ambrose <laughs> Bierce's Devil's Dictionary. But none of those are from that, no. The Eclair one, it does ring a bell. Maybe I've heard someone saying that. I don't know, though. Well, I'll give mm. you an answer. The answer is something that entirely familiar to most people in Crossword Land, because those are all in Chambers' Dictionary. <laughs> all right. Oh, yeah. how whimsical of them. Indeedy. How about that? There was one more, which was uh, roast beef, a contemptuous term applied by the French to any person who has the misfortune to be British. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay, <laughs> Void. Um, what about your choice of clue? I went for one down. American right-wingers do without alcohol. Three, five. This is a double definition. The first part being American right-wingers, and that's a term for a particular political group of people and that's the the straight definition and the slightly cryptic definition is do without alcohol and it's slightly cryptic because when you first read it you think that it means to have to cope whilst not having a supply of alcohol to do without but you have to read it differently as do without alcohol and a do being a word for an event or a bash. So the answer is tea party. Because you wouldn't have alcohol at a tea party. So yeah, I thought well, that was rather nice, that. Yeah, yeah. It was nice and short. And yeah, he slightly caught me there, but I worked it out. So it's all good. <laughs> yeah, very, very, very nice. Quiz time. Excellent. Um, the quiz today is inspired by Four Across. Captain Bly. I am assuming that you have prior knowledge of Captain Bly and that you know that he was uh, commanding the bounty during the uh, mutiny on the bounty. And I'm also assuming that you know that Fletcher Christian was the person who started the mutiny. And I'm also going to tell you that this took place on the 28th of April, 1789. And my question to you is... He was the King of England in 1789. Oh, okay. So, Dave, last episode, you, no. you said the phrase, I always let him go first, so off you go. Well, you, you, I let you go first when there's a kind of a number to be estimated. And uh, no, my, my, my knowledge of English history is terrible, to be honest with you. I don't know. Well... 1789, same year as the French Revolution, that would be 1760 to 1820, George III. Absolutely right, well done. See? So, I'm carrying on with the Mutiny on the Bounty, by the way. But there have been five feature films produced about Mutiny on the Bounty. The first was a silent film in 1916 from Australia, sadly been lost. The second film was also Australian, 1933. But the third one is the one which most people would know is MGM's Mutiny on the Bounty in 1935. At the time, it was the most expensive film that MGM had ever made. Hmm. How much do you think it cost? Oh. Nine, uh, sorry, what year was it? 
1935, the most expensive film MGM had ever made was The Meeting on the Bounty. Mm. It's just mutiny, Mr. Christian. <laughs> oh. So, is that the one with Charles Lawton as Captain Bly in it? What was a lot of money acting. in 1935? <laughs> so, so I wonder if he's going to go first. Gone with the Wind, because that was 1940, and I think that big was then the most expensive. I'm trying to remember if I. I think even then total. we've got to be into millions, haven't we? But not very many millions. Hmm. Uh, like three or four million. Should I give encouraging noises or not? <laughs> so, well, you know. I'll You'll go, go three or the... four. Three higher or four million, or yeah. I'd go a bit higher. I'll go ten million. Oh, two million. Two million was oh. a lot of money in 1935. That's a relief. I've got yes. a fairly close answer. Seems really reasonable these days. <laughs> yeah. And this is just sort of a competition between the two of you. How many actors can you name in the four surviving feature films who played either Fletcher Christian or Captain Bly? Oh, okay. Well, I mentioned Charles. Lawton. I was going to say Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson? Yeah. Mel Gibson, Charles Lawton. Oh, yeah, well done. Um, yeah, Marlon Brando. So we've got one Fletcher, we've got one by Marlon Brando, yeah, right. Another Fletcher. Two Fletcher Fletcher's, Christian. one Christian. Yeah. See, I, I can't oh. think of the. I can think of the Mel Gibson There's film. There's two and I can think Fletcher of the Christians Lawton. who I was really surprised by oh. Errol Flynn. Yes. Wow. Really? That was Errol Flynn's. It was Errol Flynn's first screen role was as Fletcher Christian in a film called Wake of the Bounty, which was the Australian film which was completely overshadowed by the MGM blockbuster. Oh, wow. So that is amazing. Well done, because I thought no one's going to get but that was his actual screen debut. I was just trying to think of someone I could think of who was in a, an old nautical film and he was in Captain Blood well, and he sprang to Yeah, and so King's Row and things like that, yeah. Well, so you've got Mel Gibson, you've got Marlon Brando, to... you've got Errol Flynn and Charles Lawton. So there's only four to go. I'm trying to think, is there somebody like Robert Morley? Has he been in one of those kind of films or something mm. like that? Mm. He might have been on the cast list. I've only written down the name to the outflame. No, one. that's I fair enough. Yeah. Only one person I, I know who was in, who wasn't on those. Um, so I'm trying to think when. Well, who, who do you think was. So the Brando film would have been late 50s? Uh, Early 60s. Yeah. 1962. Okay. And then the Mel Gibson one was, what, 90? So uh, 1984. The... So who do you think... So Mel Gibson was Fletch Christian. Who do you think was Mel Gibson's uh, Captain Bly? How about Anthony Hopkins? Yes. Absolutely. Gosh, you, are, you are so good at this. Well Seriously, if, if I'm going on a pub quiz, you two are coming with me. You are really good at this. <laughs> I, um, okay. I, I don't know. How, I must have known that in the back of my mind. Let's see if you get Charles Lawton's Captain Bly. Who do you think was his Fletcher Christian? When we were talking about the budget earlier, you thought about another film, which was around 1935 when we talked about the budget. Oh, I talked oh, about I, Gone you know, with the Wind. So, so was it we, um, we... Rat Butler? Um, no, 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 that's the character. Um, Clark Gable. And yes, Clark, yeah. God, it was Clark Gable who was in Gone with the Wind, wasn't it? Because I was just about to be really first. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so we've got Errol Flynn, Clark Gable, Marlon Brando, Mel Gibson. We've got nearly all of them. Anthony Hopkins, Charles Lawton. Oh, can't even read that. 
probably someone I've never heard of. <laughs> and the other one was Trevor Howard. Trevor Howard. Oh, yeah, okay. he played opposite Marlon Brando, where apparently Marlon Brando oh, was an okay. absolute nightmare. Richard Harris, apparently, he must have been someone else in the crew for that. Uh, yeah. Actually agreed to do that film purely to work with Marlon Brando and ended up absolutely loathing him because he was <laughs> just such a nightmare to work with. I also read a lovely story about when he checked into his hotel Tahiti or wherever it was that they were staying and they went oh welcome Mr Harris he went well how did you know who you were who I was and he said we recognized you from your hand luggage and in his hand was a bottle of whiskey <laughs> <laughs> marvelous that, that sounds suspiciously like chat show anecdote rather than fact <laughs> <laughs> it does Brilliant, but- you know, I read it on Wikipedia, so it must be true. Oh well, yeah. that's that's Fair what enough. I get half of my uh, my research from. So, uh. <laughs> well, actually, I think it might have been IMDb, but you know, <laughs> trivia page. <laughs> yeah, folks, I think it's time to put the toys back in the box. Thanks for listening once again. Assuming you have been, you are already subscribed, right? Good. Show notes are at offgrid.tlmb.net. If you want to benefit from our wit and wisdom in short text form or tell us how silly we are, you can find us on Twitter where I'm at Skowingle. And I'm at the void TLMB. You can check out my blog as well if you like tlmb.net slash blog and I'll have a new puzzle out on the 4th of February. General, any recommendations you want to give to the listener? I would like to recommend that you uh, give some money to Wikipedia, obviously. And also, if you're are interested in cryptic crosswords, I can recommend Vigo in The Independent and Carpathian in The Guardian. Excellent choices. Stand by those. Marvellous. Thank you very much for helping us out again, General Knowledge. Thank you. Uh, we'll see you all again next time. Thanks, folks. Bye-bye. Goodbye. That was Off Grid. Thanks for listening. Hello to our new listener, in Russia, La Lubyutebe. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> if you've enjoyed it, please tell three friends. That'd be lovely. Leave us a review or a rating or whatever, or give us a retweet or something. Thank you to Moo for our puzzle. Thank you to the Trudy for our theme tune. See you next time. Bye. But if you do want to, this episode we puzzled. We puzzled? We did.